0: With us tonight, I'm delighted to be welcoming Anne Irfan, who is joining us from the Department for Development Studies. And of course, having done a brilliant undergraduate degree in Oxford, our friendship dates back to then. And Anne will be here to introduce our speaker and lead the discussion with Gillian. Now you've all had the chance to view the film. And so I hope that you have come with your questions and can put them directly to the director. But now without further ado, if I could hand over to Anne, Anne, take over.
1: Thank you very much, Eugene, and thanks to everyone for coming to join us today, especially when so many of us are suffering close to Zoom fatigue as we get to the end of term. So, as Eugene said, the focus for this evening is really the opportunity for all of you to speak directly to Gillian, to ask her your questions and to share your thoughts and comments on this very thought provoking and informative film. How we're going to organise this evening is I'll introduce Gillian in a moment, she'll speak for a few minutes, give us an overview and an introduction to her work and how she came to make this film and anything else she would like to share. She and I will then have a brief conversation for a few minutes and then we welcome and invite all of you attendees to submit your questions. So if you enter them in the Q&A box and you can start doing that almost immediately so we can get through as many as possible. But now, without further ado, I will introduce Gillian. So as some of you will already have seen, Gillian Mosley is a first time director who has spent much of her working life producing documentaries for television. During this time, her passion to make films with a strong social purpose and which use hybrid genres to connect different worlds has grown, as has her interest in independent film. Gillian has created, developed, and produced high-end documentaries for the BBC, Channel 4, ITV, PBS, Discovery, History, among others, quite an impressive list. In 2017, Gillian produced her first feature documentary, Manolo, the Boy Who Made Shoes for Lizards. But of course, she is here this evening to speak about her latest documentary, The Tinderbox*. So Gillian, over to you.
2: Thank you, Anne, and lovely to be here. So, I thought I'd just start with a little bit of an overview of how I came to make the film. I had decided that I really wanted to try and make a film that made a difference and a film that was close to my heart. And as a Jew who became very close friends with a Palestinian at quite an early age, Israel Palestine is a place, situation that I have long been hyper aware of and have spent a lot of time traveling through scratching my head about and talking to people about and several things struck me first of all many friends particularly here and in the states who have asked me on a number of occasions to explain to them the situation in Israel and Palestine and I think there's a fair amount of either fatigue or just complete confusion around the issues that surround Israel-Palestine, which is understandable because of course it is complicated. But when I went to look for a film that I could recommend that could encapsulate the situation fairly quickly, I couldn't find one. So rather than refer my friends to 700 page tomes which I've read and enjoyed. I I thought I'd make that film. So The Tinderbox is my best attempt to show people who know nothing what is going on there. And as you will see it's very history driven. Much of my career has been as a historical filmmaker. History is a complete passion of mine and I strongly believe that any situation, or almost any situation we find ourselves in today, will be far easier to understand if we give it its historical context. And Israel Palestine is absolutely that story. Not least because, probably in most places other than where I'm sitting right now, this story seems to have been lost in the mists of time and certainly here in Britain very few people that I speak to realise what sort of role Britain played in you know the events that continue to play out to this day so that is the reasoning And, and I also feel that or believe strongly that it's critical that people take this context into account when trying to address the situation in any positive manner. And a lot of the quote-unquote solutions that we've seen in the last 20, 30 years seem to me perhaps not to take this context into account as well as they might. So film can punch through, it can get into the mainstream narrative, and I am certainly fervently hoping that This one does so that people actually start to talk about how and why this all started happening and how that relates to today and, indeed, how that then shows us how we might be able to unpick some of what's happened and move forward. And I think that's probably all I I want to say at the moment. So, um, yeah, please ask questions.
1: Thank you very much, Gillian, and um, obviously talking about the importance, the critical importance of history is music to my ears as a historian. I'm sure the same goes for Eugene as well. I'm delighted to see we've already got questions actually starting to come in from the attendees. Just a reminder that you can post them in the Q&A box if you haven't already. But before we get to those, I just have a couple of things I wanted to chat to you about myself. Gillian, I mean, as you just said, so much of this film is engaged with and centered around the longer trajectory of the situation in Israel-Palestine today. And, and one thing you say, I think, quite early on is that it dates much further back than you had initially realized. I'm curious to hear, in terms of your own reflections now, having, having done so much research and having made this film, how do you think we we might perceive the situation today differently if we do take this longer historical view? Just a (laughs) small question to start you off. A very small (laughs) question.
2: There are different ways. So I'm actually going to start not in Israel and Palestine, I'm going to start in Britain. And it's ironic in no small measure that we are looking at a period where there is discussion around our colonial legacy on a number of levels with certain people in the government certainly having suggested several years ago that we must return to the sunny uplands and one has to assume that that was our our empire I'm not quite sure what else they're referring to and then of course last year we had a lot more discussion around dealing with our colonial legacy so I think here in Britain it's really important to understand what our colonial legacy produces and you know Israel-Palestine is such a good example because so much continues to happen to this day so yes I think that's that's probably my answer.
1: Yeah I know absolutely and it's very effective in the film how you very deliberately trace it far back beyond the creation of the state of israel in 1948 you you look at its its roots really beyond that something else i was thinking as i as i watched the film was so much of the the politics around this issue and the, the contentions around it get really entangled with with who gets to speak and whose voices are heard as well and obviously there's a lot of power and equity is caught up in that. So one thing I was curious to hear about for for you as a filmmaker and, and to some degree as a storyteller, how did you choose whose voices to feature? You know, you speak to several individuals in this film. So how did you approach who you wanted to include and maybe who you were going to end up excluding?
2: Well, that was, I mean, that was actually an incredibly interesting process. So I started with my own red line, which is that I didn't want to include anybody who is actively, as far as we are aware, perpetrating violence at the moment. So that was the parameter. But beyond that, I was originally looking for archetypes and I certainly found them within Israel, but within Palestine, it was actually harder. So you know, originally, I thought I was going to get myself a, a left wing jew, a right wing jew, a left wing Palestinian, and a right wing Palestinian, and the Jews, as I said, came fairly quickly and easily, and you know they, they are who they are and in Palestine, I don't know you know how you would define the people I spoke to, but what I discovered is is pretty much everybody that I was talking to without going to great lengths to find people who were different from them, had very similar views about this subject, which is certainly not the case with the Israelis. And so that was a a real learning curve for me. What I didn't do, and I'm very aware I didn't do it, is I didn't go into Palestinian villages You know, I I was mostly in cities and had I gone into Palestinian villages, maybe I would have gotten a different view.
1: Was there any particular reason you didn't or was it more kind of practical restraints?
2: It was more practical and yeah, it it was more practical logistical issues.
1: I of a related question, something else that came to me when I was watching it is, you know, something I think anyone who engages with this area grapples with, I know I definitely grapple with this in my research and my teaching, is the fact that this subject is so controversial that even the, the very words you use can be loaded and can be seen to be significant, right? The very terminology is contested. So I was curious again, like, how did you approach that and how did you grapple with it when choosing what kind of language you were going to use?
2: (laughs) Very carefully. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I mean, there's one section of the film that I think was actually rewritten 17 times. And, you know, we've come out of this and it will not surprise you to know that I have been both lauded and abused by both sides or not by by people from both sides. So, uh, you know, I've had Jews scream at me, ask me if I'm worried about my safety and others who love it. And I've had Palestinians who've said this is the film all Palestinians have been waiting for and others who've said no Palestinian will ever watch this film. So for somebody who's used to making broadcast shows, That's actually a win as far as I'm concerned, because as long as we're offending everybody equally, then I I think I've done my job.
1: (laughs) Out of curiosity, and obviously you don't have to tell us, but what was the section that was reshot 17 times? Oh, Hamas and Hezbollah. Okay, (laughs) yes. I am going to go to a question from the attendees now. Please do continue to post them in the Q&A box and then I'll I'll chip in as we go. So we have a question from Chandu who is MSc student in Migration Studies in the Oxford Department of International Development. And he asks, how do you think your positions as a British Jewish woman differ from those of Israeli Jews who live with the Israeli-Palestinian dynamic in their day to day? And did you feel any resentment from Israeli Jews who might feel that you're parachuting in from outside to pass judgment on their livelihoods, on their situations?
2: So, I mean, that's an interesting question because there are lots of things that I learned about Jews while I was making this film that I hadn't necessarily known. So I don't particularly practice anymore. And we, I, I grew up in the States. And so I stopped going to synagogue here when I was about 10 other than in summers. And so I hadn't quite appreciated how conservative the British Jewish community is until I started making this film. And now I know that's not to say that they're all conservative and obviously you know I, I know a lot who, who are not. but you know certainly the synagogue where I grew up, where my forefathers were chief rabbis and translated the prayer book into English for the first time, are not receptive to the messages in this film. so that was that was a bit of a shock. And in Israel, I found the opposite actually. I found a lot of people who were quite willing to go there and in a way were more chilled about the situation. But there is a caveat there. And the caveat is that even the most left-wing Jews were, asked me if I was worried about my security when I was sort of wandering around the West Bank. And yeah. you know, we, we had some Israeli partners and when I asked if we could go into Gaza, they just said, oh, no, you know, uh, you know, definitely not too difficult, blah, blah. So, you know, I, I knew I probably had way too much material for this film anyway, so I didn't push that. But I think the separation wall, unfortunately, has done way too good a job on making it difficult for people to actually see each other as people, regardless of whether they agree with Israeli governmental policies or not. And that's very sad.
1: Mm-hmm. Eugene your your hand is up.
0: Never want to miss the opportunity to get (laughs) to put a question to a filmmaker. Gillian I I really enjoyed the way that you brought archival footage. The, The artistry of your editing though is when you have archival footage with contemporary footage running the very same kind of images so of soldiers going down a street but it's you know, Israeli soldiers here, British soldiers there, or there was something wonderful about the way you cut and spliced past and present to give you a sense of we've been in this muck for 100 years now. So could you talk a little bit about the the image matching that went into the filmmaking? Because it really is striking. Thank you.
2: Um, Yes, I mean, I do genuinely believe that, you know, we are exactly where we were a hundred years ago, more or less, with a couple of minor things, you know, details different. And I I just, I knew I wanted to do that. So I set about looking for that imagery. You know, I I just thought I wanted to show how nothing has changed as visually as as I possibly can. But, you know, one of the most joyful aspects of making this film was the amount of time I spent with the archive and the archive available is extraordinary <laughs> and it really tells the story and you know it's also pretty striking that with two exceptions I really struggled when looking for images of people who were obviously Jewish prior to 1930 and you know there were only two of those and everything else were not you know much more um arab looking people of course they could be jews but um yes so you know i I found that an extraordinary uh thing to be
0: able to but actually matching images can be quite challenging i mean i i'm a regular reader of private eye and there's always that comic you know where they 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 take uh you know famous person and a mix the images because they look alike or I think about the way George W. Bush was compared to a chimpanzee at certain photographs and you're like somebody spent time finding the image that looked like Bush's face in the face of a chimpanzee how did you go about actually matching your images did you have contemporary footage that you had already gathered and then you went to the archives looking for something that was the same feel the same Direction well,
2: of motion? Lots of archives, and I'm sorry, this is a trade secret. They they, they, um, oh, what? they very helpfully label themselves. So you might get soldiers with barbed wire <laughs> or soldiers and jeeps. So I had some help, much as I'd like to take <laughs> much more credit. For that. But yes. And, you know, I, I mean, it didn't take me so long to come up with a, a list of contenders for that, Um, less time than than you'd think. The other thing that I should have said at the beginning that I forgot to say is that an hour and a half's worth of history has actually come out of the film because we just felt there is a limit to what people can take on board when they're watching a 90 minute film. And I think the film is already potentially pushing those those boundaries. But yeah, I'm sorry not to take more credit for that than
0: (laughs) Take the credit, Gillian. Take the credit and run. You still um, the historian is always going to push you for more history. I was wondering also whether there was a generational aspect that you originally had wanted to explore, because one gets a sense that you were looking at reaching to people of different generations. Were, were you curious to see whether that was part of the dynamic? Is it getting harder? Is the line getting harder in people's views or is there hope in the younger generation? Where is that going?
2: I mean, that that again was interesting. I mean, you know, in terms of my main characters, the people who cropped up are all certainly over 35 for the, the four main characters. And, you know, obviously Israel's much older than that. In terms of the Vox Pops, we literally stopped people in the streets for 85% of them. And it was a question of who, who would speak to us. But I did get a fairly strong impression of a couple of archetypes again. And I think there were a number of of younger Israelis who were far more right wing than I was expecting. So when I was saying that I I was pleasantly surprised by Israeli attitudes, that is probably above a certain age, below a certain age. There were some people that I encountered who, you know, just weren't interested. And then there were some people who were like the the guy in the red T-shirt. And the thing about the guy in the red T-shirt that is a bit, uh, well, the thing about the guy in the red T-shirt is that he is actually a teacher. So that needs to be borne in mind as well. And I guess if you think about who's been ruling governing Israel for the last several decades it makes sense that perhaps people have swung to the right in their attitudes. Having said that you know Netanyahu is on election numbers at six <laughs> Oh, and he still can't get a majority you know he's been in purgatory for several years at this point and those demonstrations are getting louder so perhaps things are things are changing I'm I'm not sure
1: actually I'm gonna take my chair's prerogative to to piggyback on this because I had a related question I mean, the film's obviously very self-consciously reflective. And, and one thing you talk about is how you hadn't actually been to Israel for quite a long time. When you came to make this film, you, you had your own apprehensions about going there. In view of that, I'm quite curious to hear your, your observations on how you found Israel had changed since your last visit. Because so often we hear increasingly nowadays that it has become more right-wing, more religious much more overtly anti-Palestinian in terms of both the Israeli state and Israeli society. I'm curious if your experiences, you observe those changes as well, or whether you found something maybe
2: messier? Well, I mean, you know, the, the big, one of the biggest changes was the optics. So, you know, the first time, you know, I went to Israel, with my grandmother when I was 13. And then when I was 21 with a bunch of uni friends, our graduation trip, we took a bus from Cairo to Jerusalem. And then a couple of years later with my sister, we took a, a taxi from Jerusalem to the Allenby Bridge and then went into Jordan and did a, a trip with a, a friend from Jordan. and. So obviously there is not that freedom anymore. I was there, again, just as they were starting to build the wall. The walls are everywhere now. And, you know, for me, I think they're just, they're metaphors for the situation. And so I think, for me, it was quite difficult to get past that. and. When these lovely, well-meaning left-wing Israelis were asking me if I was scared, I, you know, I sort of felt like saying no. You know, Palestinians have two heads and pink and purple polka dots. I mean, you know, what do you think is going to happen if I'm, you know, going into Nablus or you know whatever it is? And you know, obviously we got some looks because it's not that often, I suppose, that people who are obviously Western with cameras go wandering around. Yeah. So I, th- I think there was that, and I don't think I got enmeshed enough to notice or talk to many right-wingers, per se. But (laughs) the other thing is, I had never been to Hebron before, and I was horrified. I mean, I've, I've never seen anything like that. It is absolutely... You know, it's, it's the symbol of the entire situation as far as I, I experienced it. And, you know, we encountered or, you know, we were filming Issa, and he encountered this settler who apparently is notorious. And she's so notorious that I was talking to other friends back here about her and they all knew her name. But it was like watching a seven-year-old playground bully harassing a succession of people. So she started with Issa, then she started on the school teachers, and then she started with the ecumenical accompaniment people. And she was sort of jabbing at them and trying to take their phones because they were trying to film. And I, <laughs> that, was, that was horrifying.
0: Gillian, you kind of softballed Hebron though. I mean, in a sense, that story does need to be told because the way in which the settler community in the heart of the old town of Hebron has bifurcated the city and literally terrorized the Arab inhabitants is one that goes beyond the wildest imaginings of the Western audience you're trying to reach. Mm -hmm. So why did you pull the punch on that? Because it sounds like you actually had the kind of material that might have conveyed even more strongly the horror that is Hebron?
2: We, we didn't, I'm going to uh, probably shouldn't say this, um, I was no, down, say it, say it. <laughs> down with Issa having this encounter and my cameraman was very safely back up quite high above on a long lens and I thought he was filming everything but he didn't. So, <laughs> so we don't have as much as I would have liked I think that somebody is actually making a film about Hebron, you will be pleased to hear at the moment. You're right, it, of course, is a story that needs to be told. But I think the other side of it is that when all is said and done, this is a film about the British mandate. And much as I would have liked to have gone on further, first of all, we, we would have needed to film differently. And yeah, it would have been quite tricky in terms of everything else we were trying to do.
1: Have a question coming in now from Benjamin Brown, who asks, do you believe that by focusing on the historic roots of the conflict, contemporary issues, for example, regarding security concerns, can adequately be taken into consideration when trying to understand the Israeli narrative?
2: I'm not sure I quite understand. So I, as I
1: understand it, but Benjamin, feel free to, to let me know in the chat box if I'm getting this wrong. I suppose is there a, a risk that if we focus on the historical roots of the conflict, we might do so to the point of obscuring contemporary issues such as the fact that many Israelis today have heartfelt concerns about issues around security. And are we gonna risk overshadowing those concerns and therefore not being able to understand The Israeli narrative today. Benjamin, feel free to to write if I've got that wrong. He says I've got it right.
2: So I'm with you. I mean, as it happens, I've just been reading this book called Humankind, which is by a Dutch academic, and he's talking about how there is a narrative that most people are basically evil, but that when you look at the research on that, it doesn't stack up. And that his his contention is that most people are basically good i think that the security issues for me i'm not saying there aren't real security issues but to me a lot of them arise from the historical context directly and from a misconstrual of the historical context so I'm not saying that there are no security problems facing Israelis. I'm certainly not saying that there are no security problems facing Palestinians. But I'm not sure that the patterns are any different than what was happening in the history. And I think if you look at the history, that tells you why they're happening. And if you know why they're happening, it's easier to address them. Sorry, I'm not even sure that makes sense, but it's a sort of long, long winded way round it. Does that answer your question, Benjamin?
0: Well, waiting for Benjamin to type in an A or an A, and he says it does. OK. There were two points there where I think you were bringing history into the diaspora experience of Israeli Jews. And it, both times it made the people you were talking to very uncomfortable. And once was when you asked Israel to compare Gaza to a ghetto. And the second was at the very end, when you asked the young man who basically denied the Palestinians had a a claim or a right, whether that was in any way reminiscent of what the Jewish people experienced when their legitimate claims had been, as it were not recognized by the international community or whatnot. And he's just silent. So I wonder whether there's something in the history which is still too raw a nerve for Israelis when their experience in diaspora is being compared to the Palestinian experience of Nakba.
2: I I mean, I, I I think you're right. But I think because the history has been so swirled up and churn, churned up and spat out, not necessarily in a comprehensible form so that it's almost impossible for most people to understand what happened. Um, that, those concerns are divorced from the context. Again, I'm sorry, I keep coming back to the context. And you know, Israel was interesting because Israel is actually a historian, he loves history. And in a certain way, he's very well informed. It's just that he he's got workarounds that he has devised in his head. And I mean, you know, psychologically, it's fascinating because, of course, you would. You know, if, if you know what happened, if you know that there were only 10 percent of the population was Jewish in 1917. And yet here we are today. Um, you'd have to come up with with something. I, I don't know because I didn't talk in more depth to Dor, but uh, my guess is that the context for him is something that's probably quite different to what I see as the historical context. And therefore he starts from a different place. And so, yes, of course, it's completely raw. Whether people are ready to, to sort of face this openly is another question.
1: That's quite an interesting point you make there though about the the location where people's narratives begin because uh, it's it's as you say probably very consequential if you have someone like Dor, let's say whose uh, personal narrative perhaps we don't know but perhaps begins with his ancestors in Europe facing incredibly brutal existential anti-semitic persecution and in almost some kind of paradoxical way if his narrative doesn't actually begin in Israel, Palestine.
2: Well, actually, actually, that's an interesting point as well. So Dor's family, first of all, apparently his family is very left-wing and they are Arab Jews. Mm. And actually I did run across a, a nice handful of Arab Jews who are far more conservative mm. than some of the Ashkenazis. You know, and in theory, you know, on, on one side of my family, we're Arab Jews as well, but we were in Spain. So it's a different, different narrative. But yes, so I I think there's a rawness there as well, because, you, you know, basically, you know, Jews have obviously lived in the Arab world for a very, very long time and very happily. And then all of a sudden, they're not welcome anymore. And so there's this sort of, double issue to contend with. One is, why am I no longer welcome in Morocco or wherever it is? And then if you actually want to answer that question, you might have to look at the correlation of timing between Israel's declaration as a state and the time when you became not welcome. And I would imagine that that is a very difficult place for some people to go to. We
1: have a question coming in now from Paul Lewis, who asks, are you more or less optimistic that there can be a solution in the Middle East in a post-Trump
2: world? (laughs) I have to tell a story about Trump as well and how he came to be in the film. I had remarked to my editor very innocently that I never actually listened to anything that Trump said while he was in office because I just couldn't you know I'd just read about it after and so next thing I know he's stuck Trump in the film and of course when you make a film you have to watch it and re-watch it. <laughs> um, I think the answer to that question I, I'm actually not unoptimistic having made the film which is a separate thing to the question that Paul has asked I think it depends on whether Biden is ready to engage with the context because I just genuinely believe that this will not be properly solved until people take the context into account, which again is why I've made this film. I really would like this this story tabled front and center so that anybody who comes to deal with Israel, Palestine and try to make a positive difference actually starts from the history, rather than, you know, random perceptions of the history, which often bear absolutely no resemblance to um, what's recorded. Maybe Um, So maybe. (laughs) Okay,
1: well, yes, maybe building on that, it might be interesting to talk a little bit about you know, and you alluded to this earlier, all of these initiatives that have been put forward in the name of peace over the last 30 years or so. And y- you've said, and I would largely agree with you that they've often been done almost ahistorically, they've been formulated almost ahistorically. But I wonder when you think about that, what, what comes to mind as one or two, you know, concrete cases where the, you, you would say the history hasn't been put front and center or the context hasn't, has not been put front and center and what that's actually meant.
2: Well, Donald Trump and Jared Kushner be a prime example. Um, the problem is I probably back in 92 I was not that interested, you know, I wasn't that interested and so I would have to go back and read up very comprehensively on the Oslo situation in order to answer that. The perception I've gained, however, is that the Americans were aware but couldn't quite navigate past it. Whether they tried or not is another question, and I may be completely wrong about that. So, yes.
0: Um, Can I follow up, Anne? Yeah. I mean, if, The question uh, about where to go is maybe one of the questions you don't answer in the movie. You leave us, in the end, with a rather soft message of peoples who have to come to appreciate what life looks like if you step in the other person's shoes. But you don't really come down on what that's going to mean in terms of resolving the political aspirations of the two sides. And you make a passing reference to a two-state solution looking increasingly unlikely. You never actually pronounce on the one-state alternative. And, And I don't know that there is anything besides one or two states except apartheid and continued occupation. So the status quo as I guess, option three. So, you know, I, and, and given the audience you want to reach, Jillian, I don't know whether you don't want to make a stronger statement at the end here about where you think resolution lies, because you can't actually expect people to just say there is equal merit to both claims. You know, Jews and, and, and Palestinians are not going to agree on that. So there's going to have to be something of a political concession or and what's you know, what is the end game here?
2: So, so we, we made a deliberate decision not to, because, um, as I said, this film is really for, you know, my often Anglo-Saxon liberal British friends and American friends who are confused, don't understand it, and when they see the film are absolutely horrified. So all I wanted was to get people's attention and understanding. And at the very end of the film is our website. And on our website is a fair amount. And that that is really um, that includes sort of how you can engage with this issue. And I think, you know, I don't want to tell people what to think. I want them to form their own conclusions from the film. Do I have an opinion? Yes, I have an opinion. And some of that comes up in the what you can do. So I sort of feel for me personally, as somebody who doesn't have skin in the game, this is not my decision. You know, I don't get to choose what people who currently live in Palestine and Israel should want. That's their choice. I personally am a massive fan of citizens' assemblies and I would love to see a proper, independent, fulsome Israelis and Palestinians' citizens' assembly process along the lines of what happens in Ireland all the time, given that what happens in Ireland is often on a par with the level of emotiveness. You know, as a, yeah, it's just not for me to decide two states, one state. I mean, you know, as a historian and only as a historian, I lean towards one state because Canaan for its entire history was a single melting pot state. But I'm not sure that's enough of a reason to impose that on people living there today. Yeah, I think the... the and the people
0: you talked to, did they come down one side or the other. I mean, just as a little aside, I was at a meeting of Israeli and Palestinian businessmen on the sidelines of a Davos meeting. And they'd been meeting for years. This is obviously one of those little things that Klaus Schwab thought was his solution to the Arab-Israeli conflict is bring businessmen together, very Trumpian solution. And they were talking about a generation gap in Palestine where if you were under 30, you no longer believed in two states, you wanted one state with full Israeli rights, you thought that Palestinian politics failed, and you just wanted to get on with your life and bury nationalism. And so these were all people of an older generation who were very wedded to a two-state solution. And their whole point was, if we don't deliver something fast, you know, we're losing the younger generation. And so I'm just wondering whether the people you talked to reflected on these sorts of dynamics, again, intergenerational, or whether there is a sense of one or other being more or less realistic. You may not have edited into the film, but just from your conversations with people, where do you think the trend on that one is going? So
2: interestingly, um, Israel Madad, the settler, wants a single state and would be willing to be a Palestinian citizen in order to stay where he is, um, if, it was a, if it was a two state. I didn't talk to I didn't talk to anybody else about it. I mean, you know, Muna's just coasting, she's living day to day they've got so many problems. she just wants it to stop so yeah i mean what what's interesting is I can sort of see what you're saying, but i'm I think it's only part of the picture because. I certainly know plenty of lefties here over a certain age, and please don't take that amiss, who are completely wedded to the two-state solution. And then the other thing that I've noticed is that the Palestinian pro-Palestinian contingency that I'm falling afoul of, i.e. the anti-normalizers, are also very much in favor of a two-state solution, and they tend to be much younger. So, uh, you know as against uh, you know i certainly know plenty of jews and palestinians who are also young who want sit a, a single state but I, th- I think they're it's not the age so much as the who they you know who they represent certainly as far as i found
1: there's a forthcoming book actually by an academic who did her PhD at Oxford in international development a couple of years ago, and specifically a study of this, these intergenerational shifts among Palestinians. Um, and she conducted a lot of field work in East Jerusalem where she found, and this, this ties in with what you were saying, Eugene, she found that a lot of the younger generation of Palestinians in East Jerusalem are now applying for citizenship, for Israeli citizenship. And this is something that's completely taboo among the older generations, And it's a very interesting study of not only changing views on the way forward, but also changing views on what it actually means to hold Israeli citizenship. That among the younger generation, this is is no longer seen as some kind of sellout. It's actually seen almost as liberatory because it's a way to claim your rights. Just a reminder to everyone, we've got Gillian for a few more minutes, so please do take the opportunity to post your questions in the Q&A box. I know my students in Jordan two hours of me talking about Israel-Palestine this week. So here's your chance to hear someone else talk about it for a change. I had a question uh, so I guess to some degree, sort of the flip side of, of Eugene's question about the way forward, which is, I, I was really struck that I think towards the beginning of the documentary, you, you say, you know, um, well, everyone says they want peace. So if everyone wants peace, why, why does it remain so elusive? And that's kind of the core question. And I'm I'm just curious to hear now, having made the film, how you might reflect on that question or, or how you feel about it now. Not that there's obviously an easy answer, but but what you might say to that now.
2: Well, that, I'm sorry, because it, it does sound very simplistic, but it's what, what Eugene picked up on earlier, and w- which I do say. I do think, as I said, that the wall has been, has has done its job far more than simply as a physical barrier and has made understanding of the other so much harder than it was even 20 years ago and i think that's that's a problem and i mean you know i i have said to several of the israelis that i was with you know not just the ones on film when filming go to the West Bank, go and meet people, go and chat to people. And some of them are actually scared. They're really scared. And that is because the government propaganda campaign or whatever has convinced them that these people are different to that. And then, you know, on the Palestinian side, Again, there's this there's this kind of alien group of people over on the other side of the wall that they they only get to see as soldiers. Mm. How in that circumstance is is this situation going to resolve? I mean that that has to stop. People have to have to know each other, and I know it sounds simplistic, but put themselves in other people's shoes. You know, consider consider the humanity of other people, and at the moment that's just not really what's happening.
1: But then again, if you speak to older Israelis, they many of them will remember going to Gaza to go to the market because, you know, it had it had really good fresh food and it was cheaper or going to visit places in the West Bank and and if you speak to older Palestinians, many of them worked in Israel, they speak Hebrew, they spent time with Israelis and and that's a complete contrast with younger generations on both sides who, who are only really encountering each other in situations that are overtly hostile. So I think that's another, there's a generational aspect at play there mm. as well. I mean, I remember reading an interview with a man in Gaza who said, I used to work in Israel, I speak Hebrew, I, I, I had Israeli, if not friends, and certainly Israeli acquaintances. And he said, I, I actually, I understand where they're coming from, even though I don't agree with it. And he said, but my kids have absolutely no possibility of any connection or empathy whatsoever.
2: And that's a very difficult place to be. You know, I have huge empathy, sympathy for people living in Gaza. I cannot even begin to imagine, but that needs to change. To, you know, that attitude needs to change too, because, you know, we, we are where we are and, you know, whatever solution has to be practically
1: Doable. Well, one of the most, I think, depressing things I found in the, in your documentary was when you interview this, the younger Israeli gentleman, and his main takeaway from Gaza is that withdrawing the settlements was wrong, because that's encouraged this rocket movement, and that's really disheartening to see that that's, that's the kind of lesson
2: he's taken. Well, especially because he's a teacher.
1: Did you, did you decide explicitly not to say that he was a teacher in the film or was it just
2: a time? It was, it, it fell down to what, what his role in the film was. Okay. So, you know, he was a Vox Pop. So, you know, the only exception to introductions for Vox Pop that I made was uh, Mrs. Mansoor from Hamas, ah. because it felt important to explain who she was. But otherwise, I, you know, the whole idea was that these are random people that I've encountered you're just telling
0: me what I think. Well, right. we're running short on time, but I would be very interested to hear a little bit about the the history of the film itself. Have you actually gone to air with the film? I was under the impression that we were sort of in a pre-release phase of the film, and um, what are the plans for release? Where Where are you hoping that you can take the message?
2: So I spent two years making the film, and last. Sort of February, I was sure that I was on the home run, only to get (laughs) stopped in my tracks with the final technical processes by COVID. So we thought we would be circulating the film by April, and in the end, we got the film ready to circulate by September. It's been doing some festival rounds, it has been turned down by every Jewish and Palestinian film festival we've applied to until about a month and a half ago and we are going to show in the Boca Raton Jewish film festival in Florida with a QA and a as well and that's next month so I think that'll be really interesting because my, my attempts to engage with the Jewish community direct on this have been systematically struck back at every turn so I'm looking forward to that we are just engaging our distribution policies distribu- distribution plans we have somebody in Britain who will be organizing sort of event screenings and I hope on the run-up to cinema screenings and then after that happens it'll go on to television and then online and wherever and then we're speaking to a worldwide distributor to sell round the world and then someone separate for bits of the american market so it's, it's it's quite a long process and i would expect you know it'll it'll proper if it comes out on in the cinema it'll be towards the end of this year or you know as and when covid makes this possible and i would expect to see it on television next year or the year after you
0: know, wherever. Well, we feel privileged, Gillian, to have gotten a sneak preview before everyone else in the world gets to see it. So well, thank you so much for bringing it to the Middle East Centre community.
2: Thank you so much. I really appreciate um, being invited and having a chance to have a fantastic chat with, with all of you.
0: And you. any final parting shots?
1: I mean, I would echo Eugene's thanks, Gillian, for giving up your time and for granting all of us this, as Eugene said, this sneak preview and I think I would also thank you um you know as a historian as and as someone who teaches this for um, really centering the history and for really highlighting the importance of thinking about historical context when you try and approach this so I'm looking forward to seeing where the film goes do let us know what kind of reception you get at the festival <laughs> next month be interested to hear and um we can hopefully keep in touch as well. Thank you very much again. And thank you to everyone for coming and to everyone who asked questions.
2: Yeah, thank you. And uh, yeah, again, lovely, lovely to be with you all. Thank
0: then, you. with that, we bring the evening to a close. And thank you all for joining us for this conversation with Gillian Mosley, The Tinderbox. Do join us on Friday for our next webinar. Thank you.